Hey everyone, me again, Laszlo Montgomery, coming to you irregularly, whenever time permits, from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. Part three today of our Chinese Civil War overview as we pick up where we left off last time. It has been said many times by many historians that Mao and the communist leadership did not expect to win the Civil War so fast. If you consider the moment... Both went at it full bore to be January 1946, when General George C. Marshall left and no one bothered to keep up good appearances anymore. If that was where the war really started, then you could say the armies of the CCP put the armies of the KMT away in less than four years. And beginning in January 1946 for the PLA, that was a come-from-behind victory, too. Last time we saw how in early 1947, Jiang's generals came out with their guns blazing. The PLA lost a lot of ground and was back on their heels all over the north and in Manchuria. But at the same time, Chen Yi, the communist Chen Yi, he was causing the NRA all kinds of headaches in Shandong. But even he knows the battle is far from being won. Then, during the second half of 1947 and into 1948, Mao's brilliant summer, autumn, and winter offensives sealed Jiang's fate in Manchuria. The battle for Manchuria was now just about over, mostly thanks to Lin Biao. Yeah, we all know what he's going to do 24 years later, but for now, he's a great hero. I also mentioned last time about these... CCP cadres, these advanced men who fanned out wherever there was a town or a village. These unsung heroes of the revolution served tirelessly as the work teams who, at the risk of losing their life, went into these villages and explained who they were and gave the whole spiel about Gong Chan Yi, the whole communism thing, and what was in it for the peasants. They were the sales and marketing forces that softened up the populace and made it easier, more often than not, for when the PLA came marching through. Trust me, they weren't always welcome. These cadres and volunteers were the advanced teams who got the locals, wherever they went, on the side of the PLA, and therefore the communists. The nationalists had their chances many times to win the hearts and minds of the peasantry, but... As a general rule, rather than as the exception, they squandered all their chances. Over the years, those living in the China countryside had learned, from about the time of Han Gaozu till now, not to put too much faith in any outside forces to do anything to better their harsh world. So when these work teams, these communist cadres, would roll into town and start pitching them, the people in the Chinese countryside were not an easy sell at all. But the situation in 1948 was so bad, many in the countryside felt, what could be worse than this? And in this episode in 1948, we're going to see how time and again, as the PLA is battling it out against the nationalist forces, millions of these peasants will be organized and mobilized, and they'll be rallying behind the PLA. Not firing any weapons, but in contributing every conceivable kind of ancillary support. The nationalists usually had to fend for themselves, and in fact often had to deal with a hostile peasantry who were already on the CCP's side. The core political leaders who made up Mao's deal team at the topmost level were Chen Yun, Li Fuchun, Zhang Wentian, Gao Gang, and Lin Feng. Chen, Lin, and Li 
handled administrative and economic matters. Zhang Wentian was the main Soviet liaison. Gao Gang, who will come to PRC historical prominence in 1953, worked with Lin Biao in managing the whole war effort in the Northeast. Aside from these political leaders, the real power center of the CCP resided in the party's Revolutionary Military Committee. This was the CMC of its day. These five leaders were Mao, Zhu De, Liu Shaoqi, Zhou Enlai, and Peng Dehuai. Yang Shangkun was the secretary. This was Command Central, the Situation Room. They controlled the eight military regions of China that they had set up, the Shanganing and the Jinchaji we learned of last episode. So, 1947, March, the communists were chased out of Yan'an by the overwhelming forces led by KMT General Hu Zongnan, but Mao already had a backup place in mind, and that was Zhang Jiakou. The city is also known by its Mongol name of Kalgan. It has a very interesting and strategic location. It is located right on the border with Beijing, Inner Mongolia, and Shanxi. So it was right at a pretty major crossroads. Mao set up the military headquarters in a place called Xibaipo, just to the northwest of Shijiazhuang and south of Jiangjiakou. This is in Hebei province. From that location, that place designated one of the five most sacred locales of the revolution, Mao ran the three campaigns that we'll look at today. I mentioned them at the close of the last episode. These were the Liaoshan Huaihai and Pingjin campaigns that took place over a period of about nine months in 1948 and into January of 1949. It was the outcome of these three campaigns that gave Mao a lead that there was no way to catch up to. By the time of the last battle of the Pingjin campaign, on the last day of January, on the last year of the decade, 1949, the only thing left to do was mop up. And it will be from this town of Xibaipo that Mao Zedong will march on Beijing when his moment comes. As in past dynasties, any conquering emperor knew, he had to get China proper first. Get everything from Sichuan to Heilongjiang first. Deal with Fujian, Guangxi, Guangdong later. And once you got all that under control, then you go after the West. It's going to be a similar case also with the communists. When Mao gave his great pronouncement on the Gate of Heavenly Peace on 10-149, there was still plenty of fighting going on, and Jiang Kai-shek was still on the mainland. Well, the focus of the Liaoning Shenyang, or Liaoshan, campaign involved two cities primarily. Remember when I told you last episode after the Siping campaign had ended, that spelled the end of the winter offensive that saw Mao emerge victorious in Manchuria. Well, that wasn't entirely true. While Mao was the clear winner up there, two very important places were still not in PLA hands yet. These were the two largest cities in Manchuria, Shenyang, capital of Liaoning province, and Changchun, capital of Jilin. And as I think I have mentioned a couple times, and I'll let you know again at no extra charge, it also served as the capital of the Manchukuo state, that ran 13 years from 1932 to 1945. Back in the day, the only way to get an army in and out of Shenyang and then Changchun was via railroad. And the rail line that brought one north to those cities ran through the city of Qinzhou, 
And it just so happened the NRA had quite the military base there. So that's the backstory for the Battle of Jinzhou that sort of kicks off the Liaoshan campaign. If Jinzhou could be captured, Mao knew that left the door wide open to take Changchun and Shenyang. And besides this, with Jinzhou's strategic location, it was also the entryway into central China via Shanghai Guan, where the Great Wall begins, and then all the way to Tianjin and into Beijing and the China heartland. So if the PLA could prevail in Jinzhou, it would also cut off any possible escape route for the NRA that was now holed up in Shenyang and Changchun. It was in the heartland, north of the Yangtze, that Mao's Central Plains Army had been plowing through almost all of the NRA forces they encountered. This was the army discussed in that Deng Xiaoping Part 2 CHP 64 episode. The army was led by the legendary Liu Bocheng and, of course, Deng Xiaoping. It was the smashing success of this campaign in 1947 that allowed Mao to strike right into the heartland and hold his position in the Dapye Mountains north of Wuhan, where Henan, Hubei, and Anhui sort of all come together. As Mao was launching his offensives in the north, Liu Bocheng's army marched in from the west and combined with Chen Yi's army in the east, in Shandong, to annihilate the NRA forces they fought against. And this central China region had always, from day one, been a KMT stronghold. To have Mao's armies just bust their way in like they did was shocking to Jiang. While the summer, autumn, and winter offensives were causing one defeat after another for Jiang in the north, he was also facing disappointment south of there in Hebei and Hubei. So now, thanks to Liu and Deng, the communists were now firmly established in the Dapye Mountains in China's central plain, as well as in the northeast. By the summer of 1948, Jiang's situation was starting to look more and more hopeless. Mao knew this, too. So he looked at these campaigns he was strategizing as the potential knockout punches. The work done in 1947 and early 1948 with the three offensives in the north and in Manchuria, as well as by Chen Yi in Shandong and Liu Bocheng in Deng with their Central Plains Army, had primed the pump for these three great campaigns of 1948. You couldn't blame Mao for feeling overly confident. He never expected his guys to be so successful against the NRA armies. It wasn't a cakewalk, but it gave Mao enough assurances that a nice, sustained campaign in three key regions would be all that was needed to change the tide of history. A lot of what had went right with the war by now was attributed to Mao's decisions. This was especially true with respect to the Central Plains campaign. The success of Liu Bocheng and Deng Xiaoping meant a huge amount of glory heaped on Mao. That whole idea to sweep across Henan, Shanxi, Hebei, and Anhui was all his idea. And to put this all in perspective, Liu and Deng made Mao look very good in this campaign. If they had failed in any way, all fingers would have been pointed at Mao. Perhaps this may be a reason why, for so many years... Mao had stuck by Deng and refused to destroy him like he did to so many others. Perhaps he never could forget this march to the Dapye Mountains with Liu Bocheng. I wanted to mention that by this time, late 1947 and into 1948, 
Not only were NRA troops getting slaughtered on the battlefield, there were also wholesale defections going on too. Some of Jiang's generals too were now starting to desert the sinking ship. When the tide of battle turned against them, some KMT generals committed suicide rather than face their failure or fall into PLA hands. As the Liaoshan campaign got underway in September 1948, Jiang had at first put one of his most trusted generals in charge. This was Chen Cheng, who had under his command about half a million troops. He was planning to win back Manchuria from Lin Biao's forces, and it was in October of 1948 that he was going to strike. But once again, CCP spies were able to get wind of Chen Cheng's strategy to the extent that Lin was able to devise a counterattack. And knowing that Chen was going to attack in October, Lin's plans called for a surprise attack just beforehand. He smashed up the vital railroad links that the KMT desperately needed for their survival. On January 27, 1948, on an inspection visit Jiang Kai-shek made to Shenyang, he wrote, quote, The reports of failure come down just like snowflakes from the Manchurian sky. Now as 1948 was unfolding, all that was left of the KMT stronghold that was once Manchuria were those unfortunate troops left to defend Shenyang and Changchun, and as April turned to May, their situation was precarious. Like two islands in a storm, Shenyang and Changchun were totally surrounded by PLA troops. This was getting set up to be one massive siege. Surrounded like they were, the only way supplies and reinforcements could be brought in was by air. These airfields had to stay open at all costs. In Shenyang, site of the Mukden incident that had happened 17 years before, there were 200,000 nationalist troops. Jiang's advisors all urged him to get those troops out of Shenyang now and move them south of the Great Wall where they might survive to fight more important battles in the north and central parts of China. Jiang refused. He had already doubled down and staked his whole existence on this vast and resource-rich part of China. To lose Manchuria was to lose this whole war and the whole of China. There was going to be no backing down from the Generalissimo. In April and May of 1948, China's ancient cities of Luoyang and Xi'an were falling into communist hands. And a year after it was lost, Peng Dehuai seized back Yan'an in another symbolic victory. By now, Mao figured out there was no need to act like the underdog anymore. The mobile... Warfare that had worked so well for the Red Army and the PLA all these years was pushed aside in favor of a new strategy. This one called for more proactive, conventional warfare. The reasons Mao adjusted his thinking about this involved his confidence that he had the NRA troops on the run, and also he had captured so much equipment by now. He really felt like he had all the makings of a powerful, conventional fighting force. He had some serious firepower in his possession as the summer of 1948 dawned. Some serious divisions and doubts were starting to form over on the KMT side. Hope began to fade, and the better-informed leaders more and more began to question Jiang's commitment to victory. Jiang didn't just sit around and bemoan his situation. He was constantly on the move. 
but signs were evident everywhere that he was no longer the Jiang Kai-shek who showed so much promise in the late 20s and 30s. He was going to be the one who was going to save China. But in the summer of 1948, it was looking like he wasn't even going to be able to save himself. In mid-1948, the KMT as a party and as a military organization was dying. Now, it's still around, and uh, Ma Ying-jeou is the president and also the chairman of the party, and he's as much a KMT member as Jiang was. It's still around today, the KMT is. 119 years and still going strong. They've had their ups and downs since Sun Yat-sen founded the party in 1894 as the Xinjiang Hui, or Revived China Society, but the summer of 1948 wasn't the best time for them. Men who had been loyal to Jiang were abandoning him, some politically and some militarily. The corruption that had become more or less an accepted part of the KMT's very existence was by this time almost a running joke. Except it wasn't so funny. Nothing had been done to curb the worst excesses of corruption in the party. There weren't even show trials or news like you might have heard recently with China's ex-railway minister, Liu Zhijun. The people of China especially in the cities, were turning away from the KMT. And even though they faced the double onslaught of Japan first and the communists second, by 1948, the people weren't willing to cut these guys any slack. There was a general deterioration of society at almost every single level. And the people's government, led by the KMT, didn't do much to ameliorate the situation when they had the ability and now were doing even less when the party was falling apart. It wasn't just the social unrest, corruption, and deadly repression that kept the people down. The disastrous financial policies did way more harm than good, and this was a problem that whacked the rich as well as the poor. Money was tight in the government, and taxes needed to be levied to pay for the defense of the nation. Because of the desperation of the times, this effort to raise revenue was done in a ham-fisted and haphazard way, which gave political and military leaders a license to rob and plunder the local urban populace at will. No one could say it's only the poor who get screwed. Because of the failed policies in maintaining a stable currency, this time it was the rich and relatively well-off who suffered financial ruin and hardship. The financial chaos had been a fact of life since 1946. And 1947 saw more failed policies. But it was in 1948 that Jiang planned to settle this whole monetary crisis once and for all. In August of 1948, after collective input from the top KMT political leaders about how to handle the financial crisis and the matter of corruption, the centerpiece of the plan was announced. This was the gold yuan, to spare you the details, within 60 days, this solution had turned into the inevitable debacle it was destined to become. The gold yuan was the final nail in the coffin for the KMT as far as any remaining public support and trust was concerned. The New York Times hailed this new gold yuan in this way. China launched a new economic era in which it will once more be possible to carry money in wallets instead of suitcases. Long lines formed at China's banks as they reopened. Order is gradually being restored from the confusion caused by the announcement of the new reform. It was the announcement that the FA beat, which was supported only by the cost of paper and ink, 
was to be replaced by the gold yuan, supported by all the government's holdings, enterprises, and foreign exchange. On August 20, 21, 1948, there was a bank holiday. You don't see those every day. And the Shanghai banking establishment was given a raw deal. And anyone who says the bankers never lose, check these guys out. All these banks had to turn in their gold, silver, and foreign currency. They had to empty the vaults. There followed about 70 days of emergency measures in Shanghai, led by the son of Jiang Kai-shek himself, Jiang Jingguo. By the end of the 70-day period, thanks to Jiang Jingguo's extreme and harsh measures, sparing no one, no matter how well-connected, the Central Bank of China had seen an influx of 165 million ounces of gold, 900 million ounces of silver, and 2.3 billion silver dollars, and several million USD. This was a real reign of terror, targeted at the moneyed class in Shanghai. And that included the big financial institutions, most of all. The one leading this crusade was, as I just said, Jiang Jingguo. His interesting life is on the list of uh, future topics. Almost no one was immune. H.H. Kong's nephew got caught up in the dragnet, but being a cousin to Jiang Jingguo and the son of China's richest man, he was able to weasel out of the whole deal. They did try and indict him later, uh, hoarding goods or something like that. But by then, he had skipped town and was already planting some roots in the USA. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guilloche master craftsman, Cheng Yutsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no Guilloche machines in China before, and Master Cheng had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N.com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. Well, these terror tactics worked fine, but just long enough for the KMT to declare victory. And then, as I mentioned, everything quickly fell apart. And by November 7th, Jiang Jingguo had to resign in disgrace. The much-heralded Gold Yuan bombed within a couple months. If there was any hope of the KMT getting these guys' votes in the next election, they were now gone for sure. These banks and institutions had handed over the real deal, real wealth, real assets, and they took these gold yuan certificates and currency in return, and now they had next to nothing. So this rather 
spectacular example sort of illustrates the kind of mistakes and mismanagement that became the nationalist calling card after they assumed power in 1945. They just couldn't get their act together. And whatever great ideas they had, like this one, the 1948 gold yuan, always seemed to go south. And whoever wasn't an insider ended up getting screwed. The most basic of basic commodities of the day, rice, flour, pork, eggs, oil, cotton, yarn, and cloth, had increased in price anywhere from 10 to 25 times. By November 1948, short-term interest rates had hit 500% per month. It wasn't only on the battlefields of Manchuria, Shanxi, Hebei, Henan, and Shandong that Jiang had to concern himself. He had to fight this war, manage an economy that was on life support, and run a government. Poor Jiang. He was surrounded by incompetence. He had big ideas and big dreams, but the problems Jiang faced were way too big for what he was capable of managing. The problems were too big for him and too big for the KMT. So, September 1948, the first of the three great campaigns, the Liaoshan, as I said, uh, the PLA grabbed Jinzhou first. This cuts off any chance of escape. The carnage suffered by the nationalist troops is beyond description. Then the PLA turns their sights on Changchun. Changchun is taken also with massive bloodletting. The last to fall was Shenyang, and fall it did in early November. I suppose even before the Liaosheng campaign began, Manchuria was lost to the nationalists. But now, after the last of Jiang's strongholds, if you want to call them that, were taken, and 400,000 KMT troops killed, now it was really over. Jiang is going to go down real fast from this point on. Plenty of people told him, don't waste those 400,000 troops. Get them out of that hellhole while you still can. When he had the chance to move them south, he refused to do so. It was his call, and now they were gone. And he'd have to face the PLA, who were now in complete control of parts of the north and all of Manchuria. The PLA could now enjoy the luxury of focusing their formidable army on a very much smaller, more degraded, and way more vulnerable nationalist army. And another massive disaster had hit Jiang at the end of 1948. In November, one of the worst things that could happen, happened. Remember the Chicago Tribune famous photo, Dewey defeats Truman? Well, that had just happened. Thomas Dewey was a big-time supporter of Chiang, and during the hotly contested 1948 presidential election against Truman, he had been promising to throw the full support of the U.S. behind Chiang. And this was going to be a close election, and Dewey was using his... China platform to hammer Truman. Chiang Kai-shek, by this time, in late 1948, had already earned his moniker from our 33rd president. He was cash my check now. And Truman didn't want to give him any more money. He thought giving money to Jiang at this point was like throwing it down the toilet. But because Dewey was giving him so much trouble during the election, Truman, throughout the election year of 1948, had to keep giving Jiang money and aid. Ha, not anymore. Truman got reelected, and it was probably at that point that Chiang Kai-shek knew his goose was cooked. The way things were looking at the dawn of the Huai Hai campaign, the only thing that was going to 
possibly save Jiang and his whole Republic of China was Uncle Sam riding in on a white stallion. And with the election of Harry S. Truman, any chances of that happening went right out the window. Truman had once written to a friend, quote, Only an American army of two million men could have saved the Generalissimo, and that would have been World War III. The Huai Hai campaign is going to be the biggest battle of the Civil War. At one time during this epic battle, more than 1.8 million soldiers were involved in a battlefield of no more than 200 kilometers. And for the Huai Hai campaign, almost 2 million peasants had been conscripted by the communists to handle the kinds of non-combat roles that I mentioned before. And these weren't volunteers. For these people in the countryside visited by the communist cadres, it was often a case of sign up to help the cause or else. The campaign's main objective was to advance south towards the Yangtze River right through the central plains of China. Mao Zedong was really betting big on the Huaihai campaign. He had already delivered a crushing blow in the Liaoshan campaign. If the Huaihai campaign could bring success to Mao in the China heartland, he knew it would be all over for Jiang much quicker than anyone could have anticipated. The campaign got its name from the area where it was principally fought, between the Huai River and the Longhai Railway Line that ran through Jiangsu, Anhui, and Henan, all the way out to Gansu. And the Huai River, of course, one of the great tributaries of the Yangtze, located between the Yangtze and the Yellow River, running through Jiangsu, Anhui, and Henan. Bad luck and wrong decisions made by Jiang, again against the judgment of his field commanders, pretty much sealed the fate of the nationalists in the Huai Hai campaign. Many of the legends of the revolution were charging at the nationalists simultaneously. Su Yu was the main strategist for the campaign. Deng Xiaoping and Liu Bocheng were heavily involved, as was Su Yu's partner in Shandong, Chen Yi. Tan Chenlin also led forces against a very well-equipped but ill-prepared KMT army. They were facing off against Jiang's men, Du Yuming, Huang Wei, Liu Zhi, and others. The news from the campaign was such that Mao issued the following statement on November 14, 1948. The military situation in China has reached a new turning point, and the balance of forces between the two sides in the war has undergone a fundamental change. The PLA, long superior in quality, has become superior in numbers as well. This is a sign that the victory of the Chinese Revolution and the realization of peace in China are at hand. Du Yuming ended up concentrating his forces in the KMT military stronghold of Xuzhou, north of the Yangtze. This is where Du moved his army after the Liaoshan campaign had pushed him out of Manchuria. Between the spies and the KMT military leadership, the constant squabbling between their generals and their unwillingness to cooperate at key times contributed to their defeat as much as any brilliant maneuvers that Su Yu could come up with. The PLA forces were moving in so fast that General Du called for a hasty retreat out of Xuzhou so that they could link up with other KMT forces in the south near the capital in Nanjing. That was the main idea. Get south of the Yangtze, regroup, and then go at it again. But use the Changjiang as the natural barrier to keep the two sides apart. General Du Yuming's commander was General Huang Wei. 
and yet another in a long line of miscalculations and underestimates, the KMT military believed they had plenty of time to regroup and get organized in Shucho. Their strategists figured it was going to take some time for the PLA to get at them. It took time, all right, but not nearly as much as they expected. In this battle with forces led by Liu Bocheng and Deng Xiaoping, he was decisively defeated. General Huang was captured and his 120,000 troops perished. Once the PLA started their main attack on January 6th, Du Yuming knew that his plan of trying to escape with his remaining troops to get south of the Yangtze was impossible. He was going down, and this, in effect, meant that all of China, north of the Yangtze, would fall into the hands of the communists. This was the nationalists' last chance. Let me just read a passage from Odarn Westad's book, Decisive Encounters. Uh, quote, For Du Yuming and his soldiers, the situation was getting hopeless. A failed breakout attempt on December 16th lost Du almost one-fourth of his troops. On December 20th, it started to rain and snow, and the temperature dropped. More than 200,000 men were crowded together in a small area with insufficient supplies. All attempts at relieving them came to nothing. The airdrops of food and ammunition increasingly failed as the defenders were herded into tiny pockets in the fields around Shuangduji. By New Year's Eve, the frozen and hungry soldiers were digging up coffins to burn and slaughtering their horses for food. Du Yuming declined Jiang's offer to rescue him and his staff, but did little to coordinate resistance to the all-out attack that the PLA finally began on January 6, 1949. On January 10th, in the afternoon, Du walked out of his U.S. Army officer's tent and bowed to his communist captors. One of his officers, after being taken prisoner, admitted that his last meal before capture had been his American sheepskin gloves. 100,000 troops were captured. Jiang had lost 200,000 soldiers in the fighting. Trained soldiers, not prisoners and conscripts. So much of his precious and beautiful American equipment and heavy artillery was lost, and now the property of the PLA. So the Huai Hai campaign was pretty much over, and once again, Mao and the top military brass were amazed at the speed with which the nationalist forces fell to their advances. The PLA was itself exhausted from the fight and quite overextended in some places. I mentioned how the nationalist troops were often wiped out in six figures. The communists did not suffer these kinds of losses, but they did suffer. A lot of PLA soldiers made the ultimate sacrifice, too. And as the Huai Hai campaign came to a close, there was a fear that, with Jiang becoming the lost cause that he was, the worry was that the Americans might intervene. Truman had no intention of doing such a thing, but Mao didn't know that. From those John Service episodes, you know how irrational and easily influenced China policy was in the mid to late 1940s. So as Jiang reached this darkest of hours in December 1948, January 1949, Mao started to stress out about a sudden intervention by American forces. Truman, after he got wind of what happened after the Huai Hai campaign, turned his back on Jiang and let nature take its course. To his own State Department, Truman said Jiang was unworthy of American aid, and he called him a busted flush, which poker players will know is a 
flush that didn't pan out as expected. Now the tables were sort of turned on Chairman Mao. They were turned in that all these vast parts of China north of the Yangtze that used to belong to the nationalists now belong to the communists. One day, all the problems of that region were the nationalists' headache. Now they were the communists' headache. And I mentioned in the past two episodes how Jiang's failure to deal with the problems of the people there contributed to his unpopularity. The well-being of the people and all the problems associated with administering a region now fell on the Communist Party. After three years and a string of failures, Jiang had blown his chance. Now the problems in 1948 were even worse than they were in 1945, and the people were calling on their government now more than ever to help them. This was now the PLA's headache. They were now stuck wearing the same painful shoes as the nationalists did in 1945 when they took over from Japan. Mao was determined not to blow it like Jiang did as far as the takeover of power and authority in northern China went. They already had that one model city in Harbin. Remember, that was the first city the communists were able to capture and hold. And they used Harbin as a model as far as how to take the place over. So that all they had to do now was look to this Harbin example and try and apply it to wherever they moved in and took over. And let me also say, when these teams moved in and began to take over, it wasn't always like the old propaganda movies where everyone was welcoming the PLA with open arms. The whole work of the CCP had very mixed reviews up till now all over China. So it's not like everyone, especially in the cities, was so glad to see them. There was quite a lot of concern about, you know, what now? So Mao had to do two things at once. He had to go in and deliver the final punch to finish off the nationalists and concurrently stabilize the cities and restore order and hopefully the economy. Mao Zedong didn't want to end up like any number of conquering heroes from Chinese history who were great at waging war, but a failure at waging peace. So with all the smashing success of the Huaihai campaign, China from the Yangtze North was almost all in communist hands. Almost, but not quite. Two cities remained crumbling bastions of nationalist control. And Mao, still working out of his compound in Xipaipo in Hebei, lastly turned his sights on these two ancient and important cities. One was Tianjin, and the other was Beijing. This Pingjin campaign would be the final campaign of 1948 and would finish off on January 31st, 1949. It ran concurrently with the Huaihai campaign. The Pingjin campaign, uh, Ping, stood for Beiping. That's what Beijing was called during the Republic of China period on the mainland. And Jin stood for Tianjin. All Mao had to do now was wrest control of these two from the feeble grip of the nationalists, and the entire north of China was his. Not the northwest, that would follow at a time of Mao's choosing. But north of the Yangtze, Huabei, north China, the Mandarin-speaking part, only Beijing and Tianjin remained. These two cities were going to fall sooner or later. The nationalists were completely surrounded. As symbolic victories to Mao, taking Beijing and Tianjin was extremely important. There really was no rush or strategic need to waste time on these two at the moment, but Mao knew the importance of symbolism. He front-burnered this one. 
Guarding Beijing was Jiang's general Fu Zuoyi, with 350,000 soldiers under his command. Mao sent Lin Biao and Ye Rongzhen to deal with them. Also fighting in this battle on the PLA side was Geng Biao. He was、uh, mentioned in episode CHP 75, covering the life of Chairman Xi Jinping, the top guy in China today. Chairman Xi got a big boost to his career in the early days thanks to Geng Biao. Geng, the future defense minister, was a close ally to Xi Zhongxun, father to Xi Jinping. First, Zhang Jiakou was taken. Then, halfway to Beijing, the town of Xinbao'an fell in a bloody battle. Beijing was a day away. Fu Zuoyi began to seek desperate measures to deal with his predicament. His office was riddled with spies and he was surrounded by enemies. PLA troops were closing in on Beijing just as Tianjin was about to fall. Four days after Du Yuming was taken prisoner in Xuzhou on January 14, 1949, Lin Biao began his attack on Tianjin. Everyone knew this moment was coming and the inhabitants braced for the onslaught. Those who could evacuate the city had already gone. This bloody battle was finished by four in the afternoon the next day as the NRA commander Chen Changjie surrendered to Lin. It was the PLA's third smashing success on the battlefield in only four months' time. With the fall of Tianjin and After hearing the news that Jiang Kai shek had resigned on January 21st and that Vice President Li Zongren had replaced Jiang as president, Fu Zuoyi surrendered Beijing without a fight. The city was liberated. And that was that. His 260,000 remaining troops, as per the truce Fu Zuoyi worked out, were allowed to walk out of the city. They left, and the PLA walked in on January 31st. 1949, Beijing was liberated and the takeover by the CCP began. Except the place was still called Beiping, but it'll get changed back to Beijing and once again it will become the capital of China, the People's Republic of China. But we're not there yet. Today, I only hope to get as far as the three major campaigns of 1948. In 1947, it was the Communists' three great offenses the summer, autumn, and winter. Then in 1948, it was the Liaoshan, Huaihai, and Pingjin campaigns. And so you can see for this Chinese Civil War, the way it played out was Manchuria was taken, then the north of China and Shandong, then the Central Plains, and everything north of the Yangtze. They're conquering in a southerly direction, and it's with the continuing of the fighting in the south that we're going to convene again next time. It's all over for Chiang Kai shek in the north of China. That much is certain. And he's still got a little bit of fight left in him south of the Yangtze. And in, this, and in this Jiangnan part of China, the communists didn't have the kind of mass market appeal that they did in the north. South of the Yangtze had always been Chiang Kai shek territory. It sure was now. This was all he had left. But his armies had been so devastated and degraded fighting the PLA for two years in the north. Whether or not Jiang regretted not listening to some of his generals, I can't say. But if they wanted to tell the Generalissimo, I told you so, they sure had license to say that. The hundreds of thousands of troops he committed to fighting these lost causes in Manchuria might have made a big difference now in his defense of his hold on the south of China. Politically, the KMT was in shambles. 
Li Zongren is the new guy, but he's completely surrounded by Chiang Kai-shek men and is the leader of the republic in name only. The KMT was reduced to begging Stalin to intervene and try and broker a deal. Stalin took stock of the situation and saw the obvious that Jiang was going down hard, and he saw what China might become under a Mao regime, and for sure Stalin said a powerful, united, and patriotic China is the last thing he wants on his long border with them. So he started trying to slow Mao's advances down. By 1949, Mao was going in for the kill, and Stalin was trying to push him in the direction of a KMT alliance of some sort. By now, after so many times being rebuffed by Stalin and not respected, Mao just said, the hell with Stalin, I'm going to keep going. And many years later, when the Sino-Soviet split happened, Mao always pointed to this moment as proof that Stalin never had the best interests of the CCP at heart. The nationalist government ship was sinking. The rats were deserting it. Everyone was suspicious of everyone, and Jiang wasn't handling things too well. He took off for a place I'm going to be going to next week. Good old Ningbo in Zhejiang province. He went down to his hometown in Fenghua, to Shiko specifically, and there he brooded about what had gone so wrong and what to do about his future. Jiang had concluded, quote, The old system had collapsed before the new one could be established. Before retiring to Shiko to reflect on his situation, he visited the tomb of Sun Yat-sen in Nanjing. He bowed before Sun, and I could only imagine what was going through his head when he had his silent exchange with the father of the country and the man who he succeeded. Surely Sun wouldn't have approved of Jiang's handling of not only the war, but the party as well. It was right about now, end 1948, early 1949, that Jiang's experts were clearing out all the most choice of choicest imperial treasures and having everything packed up and shipped to Taiwan. The word on the nationalist street was that they were going to have to take a page out of Kakshinga's book and make Taiwan the place to go if things got too hot and they ended up losing the mainland. By the time the treasures and Qing Dynasty archives were being shipped across the Taiwan Strait, Jiang already had 300,000 troops there. The way Jiang and his men saw it, Taiwan, being an island, could be defended quite easily, especially since at this time in early 1949, naval and air superiority still rested with the nationalists. The communists hadn't gotten around yet to infiltrating the island and organizing the populace. So if the nationalists decided that Taiwan was going to be the place to go and regroup, they wouldn't have to deal with any existing underground communist movement. So it isn't over yet. There's still more than a year before the fat lady sings, but I have confidence that we'll reach that point in the next episode. There's still 1949 to do yet. We all know how the story is going to end, 10-1-49. That's for next time. The revolution doesn't end on October 1st. The story will continue into 1950, so please don't give up and walk away just yet. More to come on this subject. So, my good-looking listeners all over this wild world, this is Laszlo Montgomery of the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com signing off from 91711 Claremont, California. Join me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.